Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. She's back. One of your favorite guests, Dr. Duena Welch, is back to share more about her book series, Love Factually. She's appeared in episode 92, where she talked about the science of dating, brings all that great research to the realm of dating, which can be so confusing. She brings the science to it. Then in episode 102, she talked about attachment styles and dating and looked at anxious and avoidant and secure attachment and what that might mean for us in the dating scene. Today, she's going to talk about another issue that is one that concerns so many of us so often. Certainly, I experienced it plenty over my many years of dating, and that's heartbreak, recovery, and how to move on. Remaining happy, hopeful, and positive despite getting kicked around, feeling defeated, and demoralized is possible to recover from the excruciating pain of heartbreak. It's possible to recover stronger than you were before, wiser, and even better prepared to meet your person. Dr. Welch has become a fan favorite because she's like us. She's a psych nerd. She likes to know the science, but she also has been through it, and she's not afraid to share and be vulnerable about her own journey in love and life. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Welch. Dr. Duena Welch is the original Love Factually author and coach, known for using social science to solve real-life relationship issues. She's been a professor at universities in Florida, California, and Texas across 20 years and has contributed to NPR, PBS, Psychology Today, and numerous other outlets, podcasts, and videos. Her first book, Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do, is now out globally in five languages. Love Factually for Single Parents and Those Who Date Them is the second book in the series, specifically geared for finding the right partner, not only for readers, but their families. Her book series, Love Factually Singles, provides science-based dating advice in single topic titles that fit readers' desire to save time and money and to read content specific to their needs. All her books rely on science rather than opinion to help men and women find and keep the right partner. And they all have a blue cover for easy identification. Her Love Factually client practice is global via Skype and other technologies. My interview with Dr. Duena Welch after this. If you're into personal development, if you geek out on psych research, and if you're looking to level up in all realms of love and life, a love and life support group is for you. In love and life groups, you'll enjoy the camaraderie of connecting with like-minded women. You'll feel encouraged and empowered by others endeavoring to thrive in all realms of love and life. We all know there's strength in numbers. So join us for deep conversations designed to provide healing and promote growth. Two more Love and Life support groups are rolling out February 1st. Head over to my website for more details. 
Dr. Welch, welcome to the program. Hey, Dr. Karen. It is so much fun to be back on. Your audience is the best. And I really, really just love our connection when we're talking. It's just so much fun. You have become a Love and Life podcast fan favorite. I end up referring to your book, Love Factually, and of course, your ebook, The Attachment Styles and Dating. And those two episodes have been, like I said, fan favorites. And I refer to them all the time because your platform and your mission is such a powerful one. You combine the research, the science, the data on how to approach the dating realm with high status approach. And yet you also share your own journey and your own pitfalls, which if you're out there in the scene, which you and I both have been, then there are, sadly, there are ups and downs and you share with such authenticity and vulnerability. And I know that the science and the heart really resonate with my community. So thank you so much for joining me once again. Well, I I cannot ask for a warmer reception than I've gotten from you and from your audience. It is absolutely my pleasure. So today we're talking about heartbreak, and you and I are no stranger to heartbreak. We've shared before that we've both been in the trenches of the love scene and tried to pull ourselves back up after calling off weddings, and in your case, a divorce. And we'll be referring here and there to your book, Love Factually for Single Parents, because obviously someone who is now back on the dating scene as a single parent has been through heartache and likely divorce. One of the things you say in the beginning of the book that really struck me is the idea that if you could sum up all the research on dating and relationships and marriage, that ultimately, and I'll quote you, if you can find someone kind and respectful and be kind and respectful yourself, your relationship will go well. And if you can't, it won't. And you go on to say that even in the midst of divorce or a really nasty breakup, you assert that we can moving forward in dating and also healing from that divorce or from that breakup that we can still maintain kindness and respect. Not only can we, but we must. It is, it's an absolute moral and spiritual imperative if we're ever going to be happy with another person. You know, here's the thing, Dr. Karen, relationships don't last forever unless we're the person who dies first. Mm -hmm. We all go through repeated losses in our lives. Hmm. And as we roll along, we have options. And one option is to heal and to become more open. Like the song says, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. But you know, not everybody chooses to let the light in. That's true. There is a crack in everything, but some people let the ugly out. (laughs) So (laughs) that's what they do with it. So (laughs) we got to look for the people who let the light in. And one of the ways we identify them is how do they speak about other people? So I'm going to get really personal on your podcast in a way that I have This is a first for me. I'm coming out on your podcast. Okay. And that is that when I wrote my books, and of course, Love Factually for Single Parents and Those Dating Them is the one we're talking about today. And that's out in paperback. It is by far my longest book. It's in audiobook. It's in ebook. And it looks deceptively similarly sized to my first full-length book, but it's not. It's got smaller font is how we did that. And, <laughs> and you know, when I, when I wrote this, first of all, everything in it 
can be applied to absolutely everyone, whether or not you're a single parent. I really urge your entire audience to read it because you can only make a book so long. And after that point, people, their eyes glaze over, they stop reading. So if you liked the first book, you're definitely going to find a lot of extra information in this one. It's not just like a redo. But the second thing is I wrote these books for the me that I used to be. I did not think I would ever need them again. And this is where I get really personal. I need both of my books again now. I did not wish to process the dissolution of my marriage to Vic in public. So now that we have gotten divorced, I'm telling your audience, I'm telling the world for the first time that that has happened. We had 13 years together, almost 13 married, 10 were marvelous. Everything that you read in my books about him is absolutely true. What's also absolutely true is that about seven years into our marriage, he started drinking heavily. And anybody who's read my second book, which is the single parents book, they know that I lost the great love of my life, my son's father, to his addictions. And this just wasn't an issue that I could hang in there for again. It just wasn't. So I've done my processing about that. And so now, you know, I realize that some of the things that I ask people to do, they're really hard. And you know why I know they're so hard? Not just because I work with clients on this, but because I do them too. Mm -hmm. And the big one, which you just brought up with that opening quote, is the moment someone you're dating shows you that they will be unkind or disrespectful, and it could be in a lot of ways. But the moment they show that to you, you must be done with that relationship. And I know that's hard because I recently did it myself. Hmm. The universe dangled in front of me. He who looked like all that and every bag of chips in the entire chip aisle. (laughs) And the very first time he was frustrated with something, he used sensitive personal information against me in a private conversation. And right then I was done. Hmm. And it was hard. Oh, yes. It was really, really. So I know that what I'm asking is hard, but here's what else I know, Karen. Anyone out there who is dating, they're leading with their healthiest self. So if you're dating and someone shows you unkindness and disrespect early on, they are telling you that this is the best they are capable of. Hmm. I was recently... um, talking to someone, not a client, who talked about how badly they had been treated in their relationship, how this this other person would swear in their face and, and scream at their kids and just terrible things. And I said, what's the earliest moment that you could have detected that behavior? And this person said to me, two months into dating, but I didn't know that it would never get better. Folks, it's not going to get better. If somebody leads with this, I also, I I had a conversation uh, over the weekend with a former boyfriend of mine from 30 years ago. He made an assumption at one point in the conversation that I had left my marriage to my son's father over abuse. It was addiction, not abuse. And I said, Mm -hmm. no, I've actually never been abused. And he said, oh, that's really great to hear. You would, of course, nobody deserves it, but you wouldn't deserve that. And I said, well, here's the thing. If your standard is kind and respectful behavior, not just toward yourself, but toward absolutely everyone. I mean, I don't date somebody who speaks in a nasty tone of voice about his ex. I don't date someone who speaks 
rudely to the waiter. I don't date someone who speaks like, uh, you know, Dwayne, you're so much better than other women. Most women are just and says horrible things about other women. I don't do any of that because it's all unkind and disrespectful. And that's where my standard is. And people, I can promise you this. If your tolerance for unkindness and disrespect is zero, you will never be abused. I've managed to make it now through two divorces without anyone speaking to me in an unkind or disrespectful way. That is so powerful. And it is something, like you said, that is applicable to anyone, whether they have been through a divorce themselves or just been through breakups and they're back on the scene and they want to be sure that they are moving toward love. And oftentimes people are, they doubt themselves. They doubt, do I have what it takes to find a good partner? Maybe their family background wasn't the greatest. Maybe they didn't see a strong, loving marriage modeled and they worry that they could get into something that would careen off toward abuse. I love that maintaining that standard, which should be not that big of a standard, really, that someone be kind and respectful to, like you said, to anyone in polite society, eh? and then certainly to the person that they profess to love the most on the planet. And yet we see so much abuse in relationships. And in your book, you do talk about you have 25 science-based pre-abuse indicators. I want to make sure to do some posts about that because I want people to know, like, this is it now in black and white, that inkling that you had, and you talk about trusting your gut and trusting your intuition, and that's science-based as well. But that inkling that you had when you saw that nasty look, or, oh, he was drunk, or he was angry, that's why he said those things. The minute you tolerate that, you have now set yourself on a path where abuse could happen. Character reveals itself when people are disappointed, not when everything's going great. Right. That's what you want to look for. In fact, um, as you know, I've been doing a lot of talking and teaching and writing about attachment style. And one of the things that secure people do is when they need something, they express what they need. And so I thank you so much, Vic. Vic, of course, being the person I write about so much in these books. He was just so great for so long, and he's still a very good person. I still have extremely high respect for him and love for him. But one of the things he gave me was a secure attachment style, really for the first time in my adult life. And one of the things that secure people do is they say when they need something. So I tried that out. You know, I I really haven't started looking for a partner yet, but I have nonetheless stumbled across a couple candidates. And the person that I spoke of earlier who wasn't very kind or respectful you know, he revealed it in a moment when he was frustrated. And that moment of frustration happened because I asked for something he wasn't willing to give. A lot of people who aren't secure walk on eggshells. And I really want to encourage you to, no matter what your attachment style is, I really want to encourage you to have a new attitude about your needs, which is when I express what I need, I always get valuable information. Mm. I always do, right? Because First of all, you learn a lot about how they communicate in a difficult conversation. You learn whether it's going to turn into a difficult conversation. But if it does, you learn whether they've understood how to say how they feel and what they need instead of here's where you're wrong and here's why you're a bad person. Right. I'm now 52 and the people that I tend to meet are close to my own age. I'm listening really, really careful for not only whether they say, I want to know more about your needs. Here are some needs that I have also. Maybe we could talk about those. I want to see if they go there. But what I'm also listening for is how do they deal with disappointment? You always get good information when you say what you need. 
I love that. And that is something that I think there's a tension there. And it's something that with my community, and many of them are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and some are back in the scene after a divorce, some have never been married, and they have been given the message, which you speak to directly in the book, that you will never find true love until you are happy on your own, completely 100% happy on your own, which I think is a big fat lie. Just get happy on your own and then Prince Charming will show up. And I don't like any kind of formulaic approaches to love. But what I love about what you're saying here is that we do heal through relationships. And the tension I find though, which makes me nervous, is that if we then set out to heal through a relationship, sometimes we will lower that standard and just take anything because we do feel this void so deeply that we want filled with a relationship. So can you talk a little bit about that tension there, recognizing that I don't have to be 100% happy and healed, 100% solo to find love, but also being careful not to then seek love to fill that void. Absolutely. There's there's so much to discuss in what you just said. One of the ideas in that is that our issues happened because of relationships, often with our parents, but with other people as well, maybe somebody we used to be with in our past. Our issues emerged in relationships, and therefore it is in relationships that they are either triggered or healed. So one of the big big pieces of advice I have for people, science-based, of course, is pick someone who heals rather than worsens your issues. Obviously, for example, one of my issues is I just don't trust it when people have really almost any relationship with drugs or alcohol now. Mm -hmm. That has not worked out well for me. And it would be illogical for me to think, I'm going to pick somebody who, you know, drinks and and uses drugs at what seems like maybe a reasonable amount. I'm just going to hope that works out. Folks, that's not going to work for me. It'll probably work for someone else, right? But not for me. I need to understand that that particular bag needs to be something that I unpack in therapy, not in a partnership. So pick someone who heals rather than worsens your own issues. One of the ways you know they will heal you is that they have compassion for your issues instead of blaming you for your issues. Mm. And back to the idea that you just had, Dr. Karen, about um, being happy all on your own. We didn't evolve the same way that most other mammals did. Most mammals meet and mate their courtship. And science defines courtship as the time between meeting and having sexual intercourse. So for most other mammals, that time frame is moments to hours. It's not very long. Mm-hmm. With humans, you know, historically that time frame has been months usually. Not years, not the first or second meeting usually, but usually a matter of uh, weeks to, to months, maybe a year, maybe four seasons. But because we evolved with children who have very large brains and therefore who are born prematurely. Human infants are born premature. They can't walk yet. Look at the other mammals. They mostly can. Mm -hmm. Because they just ate nine months inside and then at least nine more outside, right? They're babes in arms for at least nine months after that, usually even longer than that. Mm -hmm. This means that humans form a bond that Our sexuality is more about forming a long-lasting bond than it is about procreating. Other animals are getting it on, getting off, and going away. Mm -hmm. We're not doing that. We stick around for years and years and years. And so 
what people are saying when they say to you, and by the way, now that I'm single again, people are saying it to me like they forget what I actually do for a living. <laughs> people in my own community forget I have seven books out on this. <laughs> oh, no. They say to me, it'll happen when you least expect it. Folks, that might have been true when you were in high school and college. The odds are not very good that some enchanted evening he will just show up or she will just show up (laughs) when you are past your 30s. It's just, sorry, you got to make an effort. Mm -hmm. Also not true, but people are saying it to me again now. Well, you know, you just need to be completely happy on your own. No, that's not how we evolved. We evolved with a little voice inside us that says, go find someone. Wouldn't you be happier if you found someone? But now we're in the most individualistic culture in the entire world. And that is not my opinion. That is science conducted over a period of decades all over the world. America is the most individualistic culture or country in the entire world. And that country tells you, you've got to do everything on your own. And there's something wrong with you if you can't. And what I'm here to tell you is the only couples who disagree with that are the happy ones. Mm-hmm. Happy couples are the only ones who value mutual dependence and interdependence. People who value independence above their relationships don't have very happy relationships. And then how do you, with the clients you work with, how do you help them navigate that such that they don't then look to, because I hear what you're saying, but then also I wonder if perhaps this notion could set someone off on a course to just find anybody just to fill that void. And that's what troubles me. So I agree with you. And then I'm also worried that someone then may go, oh, okay, since I'm evolved to be in partnership, it's fine to want that, which I completely agree with. And I I believe that you can be working on your own sense of self and happiness solo, but also simultaneously desiring partnership throughout that experience. And there's no shame in that. And I think sometimes women in our generation, we were raised in this in the 70s and 80s and I am woman, hear me roar. And sometimes when I was single for long periods of time in my 30s, I sometimes almost felt ashamed that I wanted a partner, right? I was supposed to be Ms. Independent. And I felt a little shame for not being 100% happy solo. But at the same time, I didn't want that desire, that deep desire to look for a partner caused me to marry the wrong person, which we've talked about before. I almost did at age 34, almost married the wrong person just because it was time and I deeply desired partnership and I wanted to meet my person. So I almost made that mistake. So I think that there's, it's it's a little dicey navigating that. So what are some of the, the steps and the strategies that you advocate for with this tension? Yeah, there really is tension because uh, I am not in favor of, hey, we need partnerships, so just be with anyone. In fact, um, most of your listeners, if they're anything like students I had for 20 years, I asked these questions in classes for 20 years, they're going to say yes to the following statement. Have you ever been told your standards were too high or that you were too picky? Mm -hmm. And what I find is people are, sometimes they are too picky about superficial things, but when it comes to the things that make a relationship work, they're not nearly picky enough. So I have and I keep it on my desk, I've got my must-have standards. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's funny because, you know, I've helped clients write their must-have standards for years. And how you can tell that your standards are appropriate, and we'll get to why this is strange or odd in a minute, but how you can tell your standards are appropriate is what you do is you brainstorm everything that you might want or need in a partner. Then you divide it into must-haves versus things that would be nice to have, wants, then you make sure that all the language is positive. That is cast in terms of what you what you want instead of what you don't want. 
Then you go back and look at the list and read through your list and ask yourself, do I have that? And if you do, fair enough, you can ask for it. And if you don't, well, you might need to bend on that a little bit. Because what (laughs) I know for sure is people wind up not only more likely to date, uh, but more likely to become to fall in love with, more likely to get engaged to, more likely to get married to, and more likely to be happily married for a lifetime. They're more likely to do all those things if they select someone highly similar to themselves. So we're not saying get in partnership with just anyone. We're saying get in partnership with someone right. And if you do the exercise that I just quickly summarized, you're going to do it right. But a big key, and this is where we get to the odd part, a big key is knowing which parts of that list are must-have. Look, I've got a list that goes on for approximately eight days, but <laughs> but only 10 of the items on that list are must-haves. Everything else is something that if it was just the right person or we had just the right vibe, I could compromise on. Let me tell you, one of the great things about looking for love when you are beyond your 20s is knowing yourself well enough to know what you must have. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful. I've got my list right here. Secure, sober, sensual, smart, kind and respectful, responsible, generous, loyal, feminist. That's my list. Now, that's a tall order, by the way, but I'm all those things. And here's the other thing. I have a life that's worth living, even without a partner. Would I be happier with a partner? Yes. But to your point, Dr. Karen, we want to realize that we like ourselves. I actually spend all day, every day with somebody whose company I treasure, and that's me. (laughs) Love it. That doesn't mean, by the way, that I'm a narcissist or that I think I'm the best person in the world or that I'm happy, completely satisfied without a partner. I'm not a narcissist. I know I have flaws and I yearn for a really good partner again. I yearn for that. I've had it. And let me tell you, there's nothing like having had it to really confirm how great it is. Mm -hmm. That said, the only person who could possibly make me happier partnered than I am on my own is somebody who has these 10 things. That's the only person who can do it. So I have to stick for these. And where it gets weird is people will look at my list or their list and they'll say, well, I met somebody who has 90% of it. Look, folks, this is not pass fail. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't audit this course. (laughs) This is must have standards, not I guess I could bend on these. What I'm saying is the reason my must-have list is not that long is because every single thing that's on it is a must. I can't bend on these things. I can't be with somebody who has an attachment style that's not secure. I know myself better than that. I can't be with somebody who doesn't value and embrace sobriety as a lifestyle. I can't be with someone who can't kiss for three hours because that doesn't work for me. I know these things about myself. And I'm going to stick to it. And what the feedback I often get is, oh, well, so we'd be happier in partnership, but we've got to have standards that we know to be true about ourselves. Wow, what if this keeps me permanently single? And I will tell you right now, what if it does? Would you rather be permanently single? Because I'm going to tell you right now, science approved, this is proven. The happiest people are in happy partnership and the least happy people are in unhappy partnership. Indeed. 
So if you don't know what your standards are and you yourself won't stick to them, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. You're going to get someone and they're not going to be good for you. And that really goes back to something that I hear every week, at least, and maybe even every day. There's this fear. And for some, you know, I was looking at your book, you know, at 35, you had the fear that you would never, they were too old, right? And now, now that we're at our age, we go, wait a minute. <laughs> we were just young pups, but I do. I have women in my community who are about to turn 30 and they have that fear of being alone for forever. And that fear can be soul crushing. It can wreak havoc on your decision making ability. And so I'm so glad that you again underscored the importance of recognizing that happy partnership is exhilarating, but unhappy partnership is so demoralizing. And that's, again, that's that tension. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my Love Smarter, Not Harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. Let's talk a little bit about the fears then. I think it's important, like you said, when you've had that deep connection that is that intense intimacy, true love is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Once you've had it, another another bonus to being a little bit older in our love journey is that we know ourselves better. We know what we need. We know what we can't deal with, nor should we. Perhaps we've also had a deep love that then we can go, okay, I know I felt it before. I know it exists. I know that I was part of that deep love and I'm still here with all that deep love to give to my next partner. So those are the kind of things that I think can help people face their fears and have hope and remain in hope. But what else do you suggest when people are really struggling with that fear that it will never, ever happen? And as you said, maybe because they've been told they're too picky, maybe because they fear their standards are asking too much from life and from love. That is a great question, as your questions just always are. Just You always knock it out of the park. Oh, um, one of the things that that people can do is to make that list and to see if it matches them because the matching phenomenon has been shown in every country and culture where it's been studied. People are more likely to find somebody and, and be happy with someone who's highly similar in physical attraction and lots of other regards. So you really have to look for someone similar. And in that sense, you can just tell yourself, first of all, I mean, we all feel really unique, but the truth is very few of us are unicorns. <laughs> so if if you exist, someone like you exists. Yes. And your job is to pass up everyone who doesn't fit the bill. That's part of it. Is nurture some faith and by the way, learning about attachment style is helpful here too because it turns out there is a specific attachment style which I used to have for I don't know, 25 years, there's a specific attachment style that, that operates off a scarcity mentality. And that attachment style is anxious. Mm -hmm. And if you're anxious, I, I encourage you, I urge you to learn more about a secure attachment style and to embrace what secure attachment style will do for you, which is it'll give you a feeling of abundance in the universe. It's funny because, you know, you're right. In my book, I said I had been afraid of being alone forever. I was 35. I am 52 now. Mm -hmm. 
And you know what? I have less fear now than I did then because of my attachment style. So nurturing a secure attachment style, which by the way, if you get with someone secure, that'll really help you. That's a big thing. Making that list is a big thing. Also reminding yourself that you will be far, far happier holding out for the right match than you ever will be succumbing to the wrong match. And that includes BTNs, which are better than nothing relationships. Yes. Don't settle for a BTN. I have been talking to people over the weekend who are really tempted, especially during COVID. I mean, good Lord, when was the last time I got touched? I'm not even going to think about that question right now. It will depress me. So... (laughs) (laughs) people are really tempted right now to just settle or to have a temporary settling. And here's the problem with that. There is someone out there who's looking for you. And if you are screwing around in a relationship that won't satisfy you, but keeps you from looking because it's meeting just enough of your needs, this person's going to go and find someone else. Because guess what? There's not just one. That's so well put and so important to remember. Yeah. Someone is looking for you. They're looking for what you have to offer. And if you are dilly-dallying with someone who's good enough, which if someone wants a good enough relationship, I okay. But most of the people in my community are looking for something epic and deep and extraordinary. Then you are preventing yourself from having being open and available to someone who is your epic and extraordinary and deep and true connection. And I know you put it in Love Factually, the first book. I love this. And I shared this with my community before. You said something. Another way of, of reframing this is no one's ever said, thank you so much for settling for me. <laughs> really appreciate that. And, and that's, you know, as someone who called off a wedding and grappled with the guilt and the shame and the, oh my gosh, I'm 34. I'm not a child. I should have known better. I'm a psychologist also. I finally had to let go, realize that it's a cliche, but the cruelty in the moment was the kinder move. It was painful to call off a wedding after being engaged for a year and dating for three years before that and hurting someone I deeply cared about and loved just wasn't my person. But it would have been way worse and way more cruel to go, yeah, I'm going to say vows in front of God and everybody. And ultimately I'm settling. That's, that's really mean. I mean, that's really unkind. All of what you said, I just want to give the thumbs up to all of it, including how it feels to be a psychologist who has not done everything perfectly. You know, what's interesting is Karen, you and I are women in the world. I mean, our profession doesn't insulate us from that. No. Mm No. It gives us some insight. It gives us a way to to mark a better path forward. And certainly it sounds like it's helped you to do that. And certainly the information that I know has helped me to do that a lot. I mean, the person that I met that was all that and the whole chips aisle, I could have spent years and years in that relationship having my sense of self slowly degraded. Hmm. But I didn't. Yay. <laughs> when we settle for someone, for whatever reason, When we settle for someone and we know that we're settling, we're depriving at least four people of happiness, us, Mm. them, and the two other people who belong with us. And if you're young enough, possibly the children you would have had, by the way, which means it could actually have a ripple effect to future generations. So no pressure, (laughs) (laughs) but don't be with that person that you don't belong with. And I also called off an engagement. We weren't together very long before we got engaged, but I also called one off and I felt that shame and that guilt, but I would have felt, I think, more shame and more guilt if I had gone all the way through with making vows with someone where my intuition knew 
that this wasn't my person. It knew. And by the way, intuition is scientifically validated. It is a real thing. Boy, the universe is just throwing things at me right now. Yeah. It's like the second I got single, people just started just arriving. I haven't even put a profile up yet. And one of these people that showed up was love bombing me. Mm. Is your audience familiar with love bombing? Oh, yes. And I get questions about that. So yes, please speak to that. Yeah. So love bombing is when somebody maybe tells you they love you right away. They're giving way too many, maybe gifts, way too much verbal affection, just trying to show that they know you better than they possibly could in this short a time frame. And all I'm saying is my spidey senses, which is what I call my intuition, they were going ding, 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 ding. No. Yep. And so about three days into talking with this person, I said, and this is something else that I, again, secure people, they tell the truth in a kind way. And I am a lot more secure this time around than I was before. So I'm a lot more direct, but I'm still kind. Both of those things are really important. So I knew this guy was going to call and I wasn't attached to him yet really at all, but he was showing strong signs and breaking up just sucks. It doesn't matter how long or how short you've known them. It's just really hard. And we weren't even a couple, and but I was still dreading it. But I yeah. thought, you know what? I've got to tell him. So I told him, I said, you know, my intuition has just told me that we're not a go. Mm. He did not like that. No, I'm sure he didn't. He didn't like it. And he wanted to argue with me about my intuition. And I went, by the way, which should also be something that confirms your intuition if someone wants to argue with you about this, which only made me more strong in my views. I was like, okay, now we see it. So I wound up saying this person, I am 52 years old. You've known me for a couple weeks. I've known me for 52 years. One of us is right about me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's me. (laughs) Yeah. And like I said, I get questions about that because I think initially, and it's normal and human, we can feel very flattered. Like, oh my gosh, this person really gets me. They see me in a way that other people haven't been able to. So it feels so flattering at first. And I'm always cautioning my community. No, it's either love bombing or else it's someone who's coming from their own place of void. And they can't possibly know you for who you are yet. So they just want someone and you don't want to just be anyone just because they are so needy to have someone in their life, have need, insert woman. And so I'm always trying to caution, but I understand that it initially can feel kind of flattering. So I love that you're saying, no, be mindful, listen to your gut. What's your intuition telling you? What's, I mean, your mind knows that no one could be that into you yet. They just met you. Well, and here's the other thing that makes it even more complicated. Oh, I hate how complicated life is, don't you? (laughs) I hate it. So what makes life even more complex is that there are studies on love at first sight, and it's real. There are men who fall in love at first sight. And what's even stranger is there was a study on people who got married after love at first sight, and those marriages tended to be very happy and very long-lasting. Okay, that does complicate things. (laughs) So... What I'm saying to you is not love at first. I'm so glad you gave me an opportunity to clarify this, by the way. What what I'm saying to you is not that love at first sight is always bogus. What I'm saying to you is the guys who fell in love at first sight where the marriages worked, they didn't tend to say it right away. Mm. They knew they were in love at first sight. And they decided that since their intuition was so finely tuned to this one person, that they would put in the time and effort to really get to know her. 
I love that. They knew it would work. They just didn't quite know why yet. Love bombing is a little different from that because this is somebody who doesn't understand what it looks like for somebody to say they love you when they haven't even gone on a date with you yet. (laughs) Right. The other thing is trust your intuition. I have learned looking back over the sweep of my life that every time that my intuition has spoken, it has been correct. Every time Mm -hmm. I have stuck around long enough to find out what it was trying to tell me, I found out that it was correct. I no longer stick around to find out. That's the difference. You shouldn't either. Intuition is, is, in my view, it's actually an adaptation. For example, babies everywhere in the world right around eight months of age are afraid of heights, strangers, and the dark. Well, guess what were the biggest threats to infant survival in the ancient past where our psychology comes from? Those three things. Right. If you were in the dark, you were probably alone where something could eat you. If Because otherwise, you'd have been with mom and dad. You're afraid of people who aren't mom and dad and sister and brother and members of your clan. Because guess what? There's evidence that the number one threat to children all over the world at every point in history, right up until today and now, is strangers. Mm-hmm. Or unrelated men, actually. Genetically unrelated men. And so what I'm saying to you is, What are the odds that nature prepared our infants to survive, but it did nothing for women when the number one cause of violent death to women in every tribe, culture, continent, and country in the world is out of control jealousy of their male partner? What are the odds that we don't have something to detect that? I'm going to say zero. Your spidey senses say, Oh, I, I'm not safe here. Don't stick around and think, oh, I got to be fair. No, you do. Okay, I'm going to agree with you. You got to be fair to you. Be fair to you. Be loving to you. Mm-hmm. Well, you say it in the book, please don't settle for not quite abusive. Go for proactively healthy relationships. Yes. And here's the thing. You can have that. You can have that. And what if I'm wrong? And the worst thing that ever happens to you is that you have family and friends and work and a life where nobody ever mistreated you. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes when people have been single for such a long time, they start to, whether they realize it or not, they start to question their own standards. They start to think maybe they, what they've been hearing is true, that they are too picky and they start losing that sense of believing that they they start to doubt the, the, the truth that you're speaking to right here, that a great relationship is extraordinary. And I put it this way in a post one time. I said, marriage is great, but only if it's a great marriage. And we can't idolize and idealize partnership for the sake of partnership itself. We have to realize that it's got to be healthy. It's got to be great or else it's soul crushing and it's destructive on an emotional level, on an intra and interpersonal level. And I love that, again, speaking to your candor with your own life and your own journey, that you're walking your talk and you're implementing these strategies yourself. And that here, after having extraordinary heartbreak, you you aren't demoralized and you're not full of fear. And I love that, you, that you're saying, listen, I'm, I'm less anxiously pursuing this or you've worked through much of the anxious attachment that you spoke to in your previous books and you're less concerned than you were at 35, which again, another benefit of, like I said earlier, being a little bit farther along in our journey, we can approach dating with more maturity. 
Absolutely. And, and thank you. You know, I, I, I just want to share a little bit of my journey to help your listeners, if they need it, to feel good about themselves. So when Mr. All That and the entire chip aisle was dangled in front of me by said universe and then didn't have something that I had to have, which everybody has to have, kindness and respectfulness, even when things aren't going their way. And I said no to that. I mean, I so wanted to go out with this person. If I described everything this guy had going on, you would have been like, oh my God, you managed to say no to him? Yes. (laughs) And you know how I felt about it afterward? My mom gets really scared for me, you know, because that's mom's jobs, right? That's Mm -hmm. that's the job that moms have is to be scared for us. Their hearts are running around outside their bodies in the version of their children. And I know this because I'm a mom too. Mm -hmm. And she was really concerned. She goes, Duana, can't you just, just be alone? And I said, mom, I want you to let go of your fear right now. And I can prove to you that it's safe for you to do that. And she said, please prove to me that it's safe. And I said, I walked away from him. We never even had a date. I just left. And she goes, oh, yeah. Here's the thing. If you have these standards and you adhere to them, you are going to get this rush of empowerment. Because you're going to say no. And the only way we ever say a full-throated, legitimate, healthy yes in our life is by saying no to the things that are not healthy. That's the only way we get it. No and yes are sides of the same coin. You can Mm. trust yourself. There is someone you can always trust, and it's you. This is so powerful. I have some women in my community right now that I'm thinking of that are dealing with this. One called off a wedding. One just went through a really rough breakup the worst breakup she's ever had compared to you and me. They're young. They're just, just barely 30, but it's, the feelings are very real. And that fear of being alone for forever, as we've spoken to and recognizing that, that saying no to these relationships, to stepping away from that engagement and stepping away from that relationship, they weren't feeling that they were being treated respectfully. That's just a, a very subtle, but powerful reframe that is saying yes to what is good and healthy and exciting and extraordinary that that is now you had to say no to what wasn't in order to open yourself to what is possible and out there for you. Yeah. And this happens to men too. I, I was just talking to someone over the weekend that had been in a relationship that very, very slowly sapped his identity. He almost didn't realize it was happening. And was wondering how it is that I've been able to integrate my feelings and be ready to move on in less time than than he had been able to. And uh, the answer is, the moment that I realized that staying with Vic was causing me to denigrate my own self-worth and doubt who I was and love myself less, I separated. I've never gone through a lengthy period of time in my entire life. I've never gone through a lengthy period of time where there was someone who was costing me, me. Mm. I've never done it. So I, is it tragic that I lost not one, but two really good men over addictions? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. But... Did I also lose myself and my self-respect and have to kind of dig out of my self-worth pit? No. I will also speak, though, to your clients who they've gone through tremendous heartbreak and they're 
just nursing, you know, the loss of somebody that they really loved is what I heard and what you said. Yeah. That's real. And, you know, every relationship is different. And the way that we respond to the loss of that partner is different. I will tell you that the loss of my son's father was such a huge emotional loss to me that I actually almost died of a broken heart. I had open heart surgery. It literally almost killed me. And can I prove that that's why I needed, why I had severe mitral valve prolapse decades and decades before it should have happened, if it ever happened? I can't prove that, but I mean, it's very odd. Yeah. And I I think that is what happened. And certainly there's a syndrome called broken heart syndrome, which uh, is associated with terrible loss. I will tell you that I didn't go through that this time. And I think that's because one of the gifts, like I said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Lou Reed said that, but not everybody lets the light in. That's a choice. If you go through a terrible loss, And you find your way through making meaning of that loss and growing through that loss. And again, that's a choice. That's not just because I'm 52. That's because I made a choice to do it. Aging gives us the opportunity to accumulate wisdom, but it doesn't create wisdom on its own. Mm. If you let the light in, though, what you'll find out is you are a lioness. You can handle loss. And it is only when we feel that we can handle whatever the loss is come what may, that we can joyfully run toward possibility and happiness and union again. We can't do that if we're so terrified of loss, we can't face it. That is so beautifully put and such a word of hope and empowerment and encouragement that I know my community, like I said, some people are coming to mind specifically and others who reach out So thanks so much again. As I mentioned earlier, my community resonates so, so deeply with your work and let them know where to find more of you and to purchase your books and your website and to work with you if that's something they're interested in. Oh yeah, it was such a joy. As always, you can find out all about me and my work and my coaching and you can get free samples of all my books at lovefactually, that's lovefactually with an F, dot co, not dot com, dot co, C-O. And I answer all my emails for free. So I look forward to hearing from anyone who wants to reach out. Wonderful. Thank you so much. The love and life hack for this week is we have to say no to get to yes. Heartbreak is hideous. It's so painful. And Dr. Welch knows that all too well. But if we don't let go of what isn't working, we'll never be open and available to the one with whom it will work. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Thank you for sharing a part of your day with me. And thank you so much for being part of the Love and Life community. If you have a few minutes to head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the program, I would be most grateful. If you want to stay in the love and life loop, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's on my website. Just click over on the subscribe page. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.